listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. If you are new here, we are glad to have you. If you are a longtime humanizer, you know we love you. I love you. I just so appreciate the people that are kind of on this journey together and involved in a conversation about what it means to make the most of this life that I, you know, continue to find from week to week, energizing and inspiring and helpful. And this week is going to be no different. In, in, in just a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you or reintroduce you to my buddy, Phil Zuckerman, who actually is my buddy. Um, and Phil is a professor uh, out there at Pitzer University in Southern California. He is a thinker. He is an author. And I blurbed his last book and I'm blurbing this new book, um, which is called What It Means to Be Moral why religion is not necessary for living an ethical life. And I love it that it isn't like why religion is poison or why religion is toxic. He's just like, look, it's not necessary. Like you can live an ethical and a moral life with faith or not. And you can live an ethical and a moral life without faith or not. And he's sort of like, if you want to do that, here's some really important ideas. And I think you're going to find that Phil himself is an interesting and, and, and valuable, wonderful person. I love this book. Um, I think this book is one of those books that, that a humanist can sort of go, ah, I, I have a rock to stand upon. Ah, like it isn't turtles all the way down. There is something upon which this set of moral instincts I have rests. And uh, yeah, anyway. I'm not going to tell you any more about it. I'm good because we're going to have a conversation. It, you know, I got to tell you, I am so glad this is not one of those podcasts that tries to keep up with the news cycle or that is commenting on what's going on in pop culture or just in the world. You know, the NFL season started this week. What do we think about that? Um, not just because it would be exhausting to try to keep up, because, but because there's so many things going on in the world, whether it's the rise of populism or climate change that I want to be involved with, you know, our own government here, Brexit, what's happening in, in, in the Middle East. I want to be involved in all those conversations. Me too, time's up, you name it. But I, I don't want to be involved with them in that kind of a moment to moment reactive way. And, you know, so some people say, oh, yeah, no, this show is my respite from all that stuff. I don't know if it's a respite as much as it is hopefully kind of fuel, uh, you know, a preparation, a sort of thing that says, hey, yeah, if we have a conversation about what it means to make the most of our lives and about why we're here and, and how our relationships work and how we can have better relationships, that hopefully that conversation prepares you and orients you to a value system that then when you step into the fray, you know what matters and you know how to evaluate what's happening on a minute to minute to basis, or at least you have a chance. Um, there's a lot going on right now, isn't there? And uh, it's funny, I mentioned the NFL football season because that did start this past weekend. And I have such ambivalence about NFL football. It is crazy. I mean, college football, I have no ambivalence about it. I think it's wrong. Um, 
institutions of higher learning should not be putting young people in a place where they're almost certainly going to experience brain damage. Um, and particularly uncompensated young people. Uh, there's, there's so, there's so much corruption, even before you get into recruiting and the money and the way it drives alumni giving and fraternity culture that grows up around it and all of that. Like, I won't even go there. I mean, I understand it's a lot of fun. I mean, I live in Ohio. There are people here are just fanatical about Ohio State. And it's a thing that draws their families together and, you know, they, they can make a great case for it. I, I, I don't, I'm not ambivalent about that. NFL, professionals. I am ambivalent because I know it's destructive and dangerous and not even dangerous, like certainly destructive. And yet these are grown people who choose to use their bodies to make a living and, and it's massively entertaining. You know, am I aware that the Eagles came back to, to beat the Washington football team, which I will not call by its name because it's so racist? Yes, I am aware of that. Was I thrilled by that? Yes, I was. Do I feel like I shouldn't be watching? I do. Yes. Hypocrisy. Looking me in the mirror. I don't know what to do about it. We could have a conversation. Maybe I'll get some expert and we'll have a meaningful conversation. For now, I'm just telling you. It started and I'm into my, I'm into my ambivalence already. I'm not going to keep talking about that because I want to get to this conversation with Phil about morality. Wait, although maybe, maybe what I'll do is I'll I, I, like, cause we had this conversation. We never mentioned the NFL. I'm going to go back. I'm going to listen to this conversation along with you. And then uh, I'm going to think about it and try to figure out whether it's ethical for me to watch an NFL football game. In other news, also this weekend was uh, the second meeting of the year of our caravan fellowship here in, uh, I shouldn't call it, it's a community. Fellowship sounds too churchy. And believe me, we do enough churchy stuff at, at Caravan that there people are triggered all over the place by the way we by the way we meet and gather, the kind of the the tone of the thing. I don't want to even call it a fellowship, let alone a church. I'm just telling you, it's a bunch of really wonderful humanists getting together to pursue goodness in a kind of a a thoughtful, even even ritualized way. And it's starting to grow. And the core group is super strong, full of really wonderful people. If you live in Cincinnati, my goodness, you ought to at least come and try it one time um, and see if, see if because it, it's hard to describe, but it's, it's so beautiful to be together with people that way. And, you know, as with many things, you kind of can judge how good the event was by the level of conversation and engagement that people have in the, in the hour after it's over with. And if yesterday was any indication, I think... You know, we, we, we have not mastered community. We are practicing community uh, building. But uh, so far, the practice seems to be paying off. And it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. And I will, I'm going to get one, one of my compadres uh, in this is a, a wonderful woman named Leah Helbling. And Leah has a, a podcast of her own where she talks to women who are processing faith, you know, faith deconversions. Um, she has a background a lot like mine, but she's just a star at this stuff. She, um, I'm going to get her on the show and we're going to have a conversation about Caravan. Not so much to hype it because most of you don't live anywhere close enough to check it out. But just as a model or not a model, that's too – like as an example of how like normal people with no money can make something beautiful happen in their backyard. 
So anyway, you know, for some of you that already know about it and you're like, is that thing still happening? And is it any good? And, you know, or is it petered out like all the, no, it hasn't petered out at all. It's, it's, it's growing in, 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 in quality and in depth. And it gives me hope that there may not only be morality without, without kind of supernatural religion, but there may even be spiritual fellowship and, and spiritual dynamism and, and collective growth and all of that kind of good stuff without supernatural religion too. Um, Cause it feels like at week to week we're doing it. All right. Enough of my enthusiasm and ambivalence. Now it's time for an actual conversation. This is me and Phil Zuckerman. I, I, I got a, I got a biography on him. He's, he's the, He's a professor of sociology at Pitzer College and the founding chair of the nation's first, and I dare say only, secular studies program. And he lives in Claremont with his wife and three children. I have not met this wife and these three children, but sometimes you get a little bit of a sense of a family just by hearing one person talk about it. And if you've been around enough people and enough families I like there are things that I hear when people are talking about their families that, that fill me with joy and hope and make me think um, I would probably feel comfortable in that household. And Phil Zuckerman talks about his household in a way that makes me want to go there. Yeah. So anyway, here's our conversation. I think you're going to dig it. I think you'll dig the book if you check it out. I'll see you on the other side. All right. Me and Phil Zuckerman. Go. Phil Zuckerman. Yes. In my world again after what years? <laughs> I don't has it been? I don't know. I remember seeing it you at USC. Uh, but maybe that was the last time. That was two years ago that I was at USC. Wow. I've been back in Cincinnati for two years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How's so, it treating you? You know, I like I like it here. Um, oh, I'm so it's glad an to easy hear that. place to live and my wife is so happy here good things. <laughs> Those are two good things. You live more in the current political like atmosphere than I do, hmm. I think. Hmm. I picked up a, an op-ed you wrote in the LA Times like not that long ago. Hmm. And it was, it was about Mike Pence and hmm. people claiming the shootings in El Paso and Dayton were caused by God by, by, by they were the, the, the real cause was us turning away from God and you sort of repudiating that and fighting it with data. Yeah. And I thought you, you, you read the newspaper, don't you? <laughs> I do read the newspaper. I read the LA times. I, I check several, you know, I read the New York times online, uh, CNN, Huffington post every now and then just to itch my, uh, you know, funny bone. I read Fox news just to see what the propaganda machine is churning out. Uh, those are pretty much my go-to, go-to sources. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I I've started reading Fox news whenever I read the New York times mm. and just feeling like I need to, you know, I need to know what the other half of the country that's right is reading. And that's they right. both feel like propaganda machines to me these days. 
Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I don't feel that way about the New York Times, but well, you but, know, that's I didn't feel that way about Obama's executive orders either. Like I mm, agreed with them, so I did. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me that they were right. um, circumventing Congress and right changing the very nature of the way our democracy works. But then when somebody else starts making executive orders, <laughs> I go like, "Wait a second. And it's that, true. And that's it's how I true. feel about the New York Times with its news. Like. I agree with their perspective, but it's very clear to me that they're writing with an agenda. Yeah. I feel that way about the deficit, you know, like all I ever heard was that Dems were running up the deficit. And then now, of course, Trump's run it up even more as if, uh, you know, conservatives acted like they were being so fiscally responsible. (laughs) But of course, I don't think Trump is a Republican the way those Mm. other people were Republicans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, so, okay. So you're, 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 you're in all this news, but yet you, it, it feels like you pulled out of the news or, or, or at least you, you paused for a second to write a book about morality. Uh, yes and no. I, I think I would respond by saying at the end of the day, all of my politics are driven by my morality. In other words, there's no issue that I have on a political question that doesn't always go to the question of does it cause suffering or not. I mean, you know, the reason I'm horrified by global warming is not some abstract political opinion, but I think this is going to cause suffering. Real people are going to experience real suffering and other living creatures. Um, when I look at issues like gun control, when I look at any economic inequality, uh, uh, student debt, it's these are all, in my opinion, moral issues. And I think that's where the left and secular people have uh, failed in a sense. They've allowed religious people and conservatives and Republicans to act like they're the moral wing. <laughs> and it's quite the opposite. Uh, they're, they're actually the immoral wing that is creating suffering, creating inequality, cr- fostering injustice. Uh, and, and it's actually the left and the secularists often who are taking moral positions. And so, well, wait, even I though- mean, Wait, my, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. They're taking competing moral positions. Yeah, that's true. They don't. They wouldn't think that they're taking immoral positions. No, they would no. think they're taking moral positions. Yeah, that. Well, that's of course. That's there's no question about it. So, so then we just have to define what we mean by moral. And I would define moral in a number of ways. But at the top of, of the list would be, you know, do your actions or ideas, you know, decrease unwanted suffering? Do they increase well-being? Do they increase fairness and justice? Do they decrease harm? So now, if they think their policies and ideas are doing that, now we have an empirical difference, not a moral difference, you know. And, and I'm willing to show. That that you know, when people don't have state-funded, tax-subsidized healthcare, they suffer more, and I, I believe I can prove that empirically than when it's through private insurance. So on any issue, whether it's global warming, whether it's gun violence, so so you're right. Maybe I, I overstated that. What I would say is we both think we have a moral view, but I would argue that the uh, an agenda that truly lowers suffering and produces greater outcomes of well-being and justice is the more moral one. And, and so I guess that's, that's where the debate has to be. But before you get to that debate, mm-hmm. you've, you've posited a moral standard. Mm-hmm. And, 
as a as as a man who was raised in the evangelical community, I have a knee jerk twitch reaction where I just want to look at you and go, <laughs> but upon what do you base that moral that moral framework? Sure, you know, which, sure. And 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 on some level, I'm going to say that's what this whole book is about. Exactly, it's an answer exactly. to the question that the Christian asks of the secular humanist, which is to say, I don't understand. If you don't believe in God, how do you know what's right and wrong? That's right. I, ju I just got an email yesterday from a, a colleague in, in our natural sciences. He's a chemist. And, and it was just the greatest email. And he said something like, oh, I can't wait. To, I just heard about your new book. And, you know, you know, I was accosted years ago by, by my colleague uh, who's, you know, when he heard I was an atheist, just cornered me at the, by the, by the copier and said, well, how can you be moral if you don't believe in God? And he said, and I fumbled for an answer. And this is, you know, as a brilliant uh, chemist uh, getting accosted by, a, by one of his colleagues. So, so you're absolutely right, Bart. It, it wasn't, you know, the politics aside, I wanted to write a book that would simply make it clear, well, where does our morality come from? What do we base our morality on? How does morality without a God work? But when I'm trying to talk about these things without a, without a particular person in mind, I would say that uh, that a morality based on God is is problematic for four reasons. It's very clear. So so number one, there's no evidence that said God exists. So, so so right away, that's just you know ground zero for atheism, right? Like barring any convincing evidence <laughs> that we can appeal to, uh, there is no evidence of a God. So right away, we make a leap of faith, and I think a leap of faith is a, is a really uh, flimsy and brittle, um, uh, you know. A stage to base one's morality. So, so we're we're basing it on 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 something that doesn't exist. But let's ignore. Let, let's even grant that. Let's say there is a God. Let's say this. The evidence is conclusive, and everybody agrees, and 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 we all have been proven now that there is a God. That still makes morality problematic because number two, no one can agree what this God wills or wants. So, what are gods? What does the Lord require? Everybody disagrees. Does he approve of slavery? Does he not? Does he want women to stay silent? Does he not? Does he want us to beat our children? Does he not? Does he want us to be vegetarians? Does he not? Like no one can agree what that God wants. So now even if there is a God, now we're in the horrible position of trying to interpret God's codes and and commandments. But even if we could solve that, even if somehow we all got the same email from God saying, this is exactly what I require of you, and everybody agreed, that makes things worse because now we are being reduced to obedient servants simply following orders. And an obedient individual is not a moral agent. If I'm just following orders, doing what someone with more power over me tells me to do, I have forfeited moral reasoning. I am not listening to my conscience. I am not deliberating on the effects of my actions. I'm not even concerned with the effects of my actions on somebody else, I'm simply following orders, like a private in a, in a, in a, in a unit uh, who just does whatever the commander says, whether it be good or bad. So that really destroys morality. But even if we say, accept, fine, we're just going to accept whatever God commands as moral, that doesn't make it moral. It just makes it a commandment, as the Euthyphro dilemma articulated by Plato in the Socratic dialogue shows. There's, not, there's no way we can call it moral. That's adding our judgment to it. All we can say is we are following the commands of an all-powerful being. And that's it. We can't say it's moral. And so those are, I mean, again, I know that's not going to help the the poor person who's you know coming out of their faith and trying to navigate the world, but uh, I hope it can help some people uh, reframe how they understand the role of God in morality. It's actually quite destructive to morality.
I think that the, the first two would almost be assumed by somebody coming out of faith. They would go like, mm -hmm. that's why I'm leaving. <laughs> right. <laughs> there wasn't right. enough evidence. And, 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 you know, one sign or demonstration of the lack of evidence is all the disagreement. I mean, because if there was clear right. evidence, there would probably be clear agreement. But that's then right. when you get to the, the next one, we say, like, yeah, but like, because again, their believing brethren would say, there is evidence. An act yeah. of, the disagreement is an act of immorality. Um, if, if people were truly obeying God and truly praying the way they should and reading the Bible the way they should, there would be agreement. Um, everyone would agree with us because our sex, and, and, do, and, our right. sex doing it right. Um, right. But then you get to this third argument where you say, even if God was clear and unambiguous in his commandments. That's right. That's right. You're going to say it isn't moral just to obey somebody who knows what they're talking about. And I'm going to go like, well, wait a second. <laughs> when the plane, when the pilot on the, on the 747 has a heart attack and the co-pilot has a heart attack and they come back in the plane and nobody else will step forward. And I step forward into the cockpit and I take the, take the, the helm of the ship, not yes. knowing anything. And, 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 and the air traffic controller says, Bart, I'm going to, I'm going to talk you down. Do exactly what I say. Sure. It is moral of me to obey him because there's a clear understanding that I have that he or she knows better how to land the plane than I do. And so my, my surrender of my will is just mm -hmm. good common sense. <laughs> Okay, so I hear what you're saying. So we're confusing moral knowledge with aeronautical knowledge. Uh, uh, and so the, the, the only moral question you're confronted there is, is it the right thing to do to save all the people on the plane? That, that's the only moral question. How to do it is just a matter of physics and experience and aeronautical know-how. So by you following the guidelines of the air traffic controller, you've already made the moral decision that that's what should be done. Yes, but that as I so have then, done with God, because I have decided that the salvation of all humanity and the eternal life and happiness of every human creature. Um, right. I've already decided that that's what I want. That's the only moral right. decision I've made. And, and therefore, because God is the ultimate air, air traffic controller, I surrender my right. will to him. And it is a moral act. It's a more, I, I surrender my, my, my decision-making be, precisely because of my initial decision, which is I want the ultimate good and I trust God to, to deliver the ultimate good. Okay. So that gets us to the Euthyphro dilemma then. Basically, it's a, it's a Socratic dialogue that takes place between Socrates and this guy Euthyphro, written down by Plato, uh, in which they're discussing the nature of right and wrong, good and bad. What are our obligations? What are our obligations to our parents. What are our obligations to the criminal justice system? What are and and Euthyphro seems to really know have all the answers. Like he just seems to know and know and know. And yes, you got to do this and you got to do that. In fact, it all starts because Euthyphro is at the basically the DA's office about to turn in his own father for 
killing some workers that were only accidentally died under his care. And Socrates is like, wow, you're going to turn in your own dad? Like, what the heck? And he's like, you got to, that's what justice requires. And he's like, but your dad didn't mean for those workers to die. So it doesn't matter. They were under my father's care. He's negligent. They died. It's, he's a murderer, you know? And Socrates is kind of struck by his surety and says, but wow, you really seem to know what's what with morality. How do you, how do you know what's moral? And, and I, I'm paraphrasing the ancient Greek. And Euthyphro basically says, well, whatever the gods or whatever God commands, that's moral. And then, of course, Socrates says, well, does God command these things because they are moral, or do they become moral when God commands them? And Euthyphro's like, what's the difference? Who cares? And Socrates is like, that's yeah, a huge difference. Like, oh, in other yeah. words, it, and they and, they, and they're both really problematic. Like, if God commands them because they're moral in and of themselves, then that means morality exists outside externally to God. We, God is redundant. We don't need God. We can just figure out what it is. God's simply commenting, really, and just sort of saying, like, that's moral, but morality exists outside of it. If it's the other way around, that it only becomes moral once God commands it, that means it's arbitrary. God can command anything, and then it's suddenly moral. But then the adjective moral doesn't really signify anything. It's, it's, it becomes tautological. It's just like, well, it's whatever God commands. Calling it moral doesn't really clear up anything. And so I would argue that even if a person said, like, I'm choosing to give up you know, my life to whatever God commands, they are abdicating their ability to look at the, the reasons to be moral that are right in front of their faces, which is the suffering of others the well-being of others. And if they just trust that God that following God's commands will make sure all goes well, that's I guess that's good and fine, but I would still ask them to then look at the results, right? You know, like I guess if I found a person who was doing nothing but easing the suffering of others and um, you know, fighting for justice and I said, "Why are you doing that?" and they said, oh, only because God commands it. I'd say, well, that's a little weird, but glad you're doing it. <laughs> I, would, I would prefer they say to me, oh, I'm doing this because it, 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 it feeds the hungry and I know what it's like to be hungry and I don't want others to suffer of that. And I'm doing this because I want there to be equality in our criminal justice system and I, I don't want people to be tortured or suffer. Uh, and I know what that feels like because I'm a human being. In other words, um, so I guess if they only gave like, you know, supernatural answers like i'm just following orders i'm just following orders i'm just following orders i'm not a moral agent I, I i don't think so like I, I again i guess if you're a consequentialist you could just say well whatever they do that's all that matters um and i'm i'm okay with that like i said i think i think it was steve allen who said something like hey if a bunch of people want to worship a great giant pumpkin and part of that worship is you know going to food banks and feeding the hungry what do I care about the great giant pumpkin? And so I kind of feel that way about God. Like if if a person, but I think the person who is just following orders, I think there's, this is going to sound terrible, um, but I do think there's a bit of self-deception there. I, I mean, would they really not care about the suffering of another person and they're only doing it because a supernatural entity commands them to? I mean, to me, such a person almost feels amoral like really you, you you're like a sociopath you just you have no feel for the suffering of other people you have no feel for their for their what they're going through you're just following orders so uh, the analogy i like to use is in my book is you know a private who's just been plopped in vietnam he's a young kid 19 years old and he's got a sergeant who's been there for a while knows the terrain knows what to do and he gladly you know will follow orders and he and he knows this sergeant has the best interest of the troop at mind and so he just does whatever the sergeant says and some 
sometimes the sergeant may say, all right, tomorrow we're going to go feed all these kids in this village. Aye, aye, sir. And he, he does what he's commanded. But the sergeant might say, all right, tomorrow we're going to go shoot it, kill everything that moves. Now, the soldier that says, aye, aye, sir, and just trusts that the sergeant knows what he's doing is, is no longer a functioning moral agent. They've abdicated their own con- uh, ability to have a conscience, to weigh wrong and right, uh, to, to, to look at the, the, the consequences of their actions. Once, so, but once again... Yeah. If I if I'm with a doctor and he says, "Listen, give this guy vitamins, cool his head," you know, and then the next day he says, "Take a knife and cut that guy's stomach open." <laughs> Um, then I would have to understand. I'd, I would I would demand of that doctor that he explain to me, you know, what's going on. And, and if I yeah, and he'd have to show me, and and he would have had to earn my real trust. I would have had to have experiences with this guy, you know, and I would had have to have had um, that kind of a, a relationship. And I guess if someone feels like they have that kind of a relationship with this invisible supernatural deity, um, like I said, I. I don't know. To me, it all boils down to the that fir- early, early, early story. I think the people that wrote the Bible, they knew about. They, they were thinking about this shit, you know, five thousand years ago, and they were like, "We have to get people to be obedient to God." What What's a story that would prove that obedience? Aha! Would a father? kill his own son if he was convinced God wanted him to? Would he just say, I don't know why you're asking this of me, but I believe in you so much that I'm going to slit, I'm going to, I'm going to slit my son's throat. And that's the story of Abraham and his son. It's, and it's basically God saying like you passed. And to me, that story is everything that's wrong with a God-based morality. Oh, when I was it's in like, college, when I was in college, I read a book by Soren Kierkegaard called fear fear and trembling and it was exactly. all about what Kierkegaard I always remember the phrase Kierkegaard's phrase is there such a thing as a teleological suspension of the ethical and that is yeah you yeah. you know what's right and you 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 know you know what what's the, the ethic is like this is this is what we're supposed to do but you have a higher purpose you know if god says Hey, yeah, that's do the that's wrong thing because yeah, the, you know, he said, is there a moment where you go like, well, trusting God is more important than doing what's right because trusting God is what's right. That's right, and and that's the major point he makes in that his the major point that he makes in that in that story is to say that Abraham did the right thing by choosing that path and just giving up his moral compass, smashing his moral compass. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a fascinating thing. And so what you're saying, obedience you don't give a lot of a lot of uh moral uh credit for. Um whereas I I I'm I'm maybe a little bit more willing to say under certain circumstances trust uh trust makes sense because especially if yeah. you're if you're out of your depth. But then you go like, okay. Yeah. So then let tell me why you trust this God. Do you trust this God because Whatever he says is by definition good. <laughs> right. Or do you trust this God because he knows what's good better than anybody? Because he's a real student of the good. He's fully in, in touch with the good. Maybe even he created the good. So, you know, like he has a, a kind of an inventor's knowledge of his creation, but that the good exists apart from this God. And if he walked off the scene, the good would still be good. That that's that's okay, but but we have to be very careful here. And this is what I I do appreciate about philosophy. It's 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 really the art of clear thinking. Unfortunately, it's not the art of clear writing. Guys, fucking can't write for shit. But but <laughs> here's the bottom line: listen to the words we're using: moral, good, 
those are adjectives, right? Those are adjectives, right? It's like beautiful, funny, intelligent, brave. There's no app. These are things we use to try and describe something. It's context space. It's all relative. Like, like beautiful compared to what? Your version of beautiful is not going to be my, trust me, my, what my brother thinks is beautiful is not what I think is beautiful. And that's my brother. Now try to compare beauty standards over, over history, from culture to culture, right? So, so adjectives are the problem here, right? So if we want to, the minute we call something moral or even good, we're now imbuing that uh, whatever we're signifying with certain meanings that can't be proven, right? I can't prove it in some objective sense, like I can't, you know, like like the height of a tree or the weight of a rock or the best way to land an airplane, right, without it crashing. These are things that can be proven through physics, through observation, through calculation, through velocity, et cetera, et cetera. So, so even if someone says to me, I trust that God knows what's good, I have to stop them and say, well, what do you mean good? That's, that, is that good in your understanding or good in God's understanding? And then the minute they say, well, good in God's understanding, that's a tautology. Well, why, what do you mean God's understanding? What is God? Whatever God says is good. So by nature, good has no definition. It's just whatever God thinks. So all we can say is God thinks things. Calling them good is automatically applying a standard or a qualifier to them by on what grounds, right? God can't call his own things good by what standard? His own? Do you so see what then, I'm saying? Yes, I do. And, okay. and, and, and this reminds me very, very distinctly of a conversation I had in a church uh, mm. that I was at with my father and we were sort of doing one of our dialogues. And the person said to me, I just don't understand as a humanist, it feels like morality is completely subjective. And I was like, you know, it's all relative and it's, sub it's a, sub there's, there's no objectivity to it. I was like, exactly. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that morality, what's, you know, what's moral in one situation might not be moral in another situation. And what's moral to two different people might seem very different. And that in a sense, your morality depends on what you define as exactly. your ultimate value. Exactly. You got it. It, it. We first have to define it. Once we define it, hey, we can bring in all kinds of objective measures, right? Like if I want to define, you know, morality as the well health and well-being of of living creatures, there's ways to measure that, right? Does this does this toxin decrease it? Does this vitamin increase it? Does this me kicking my dog? cause pain? Does me loving my dog? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to measure it. But the ultimate move, the ultimate move of defining what we mean by moral, just as if we were to find, well, what do we mean by intelligent? What, you know, it's sort or of like beauty. people you, right, or beauty. Like people say that all the time, like, well, this is really intelligent. I mean, if you stop them and say, well, wait a minute, is there an objective definition to intelligent or is it just kind of subjective, whatever we say it is? And we say, well, of course, there's no objective definition of intelligent. We have to define it first. We, if we want to define it by SAT scores, fine, but that's just a definitional move that not everyone's going to sign on. And so, and this is interesting, Bart, because this actually cuts both ways. There's a lot of secular thinkers like Sam Harris, who actually, I think, got trapped by the religious people because the religious people think, aha, the minute you say 
morality is subjective, it's anything goes. Well, then, you know, whatever you say, uh, you know, whatever Charles Manson says is moral is moral. There's no way to, to argue against it. So I think so, even some seculars have, have uh, veered away from seeing morality as subjective and they want to insist that it is objective. It's just not God given. But there are these, obje- and I, I, I totally uh, reject that. Morality is what we say it is as individuals, as groups, as cultures, fumbling through a godless universe, doing our best to make sense of why we're here, how to live, how to live well. And that's going to change and morph and we're going to debate and we're going to argue and we're even going to come to blows over it. Welcome to the human condition. And I'm not with Sam Harris on this one, but I'm not with you either. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. Because the fact of the matter is, is that from the time of the first single-celled organism, every living creature has an original value, an original imperative, and that is to survive and to propagate. Okay. All of the creatures that have made it this far in the game, the one thing they have in common is an instinctual value of life. Okay. And so I actually think that any in any sentient being yeah ultimately the first thing that they would become aware of is you know what um all my instincts are geared towards one thing survival and propagation yeah staying Absolutely. alive and, and probably and, and what's interesting is is the propagation yeah. is more is, is in many ways more important than staying alive animals will sacrifice themselves in order to in order in order to keep their dna going it's 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 richard dawkins with the selfish gene Absolutely. That within you, there's something else. Within you, there is a, a, a genetic compulsion that is using you. Life is using you to keep going. And so to me, that's as close as you get to, if not an objective basis of morality, at least a common basis. I, I, I would accept that some people wouldn't choose that as a value, life. Mm-hmm. But, but evolution has a way of taking care of those. Like they, they, they don't propagate very well. If you don't but value just, life, you don't right. go on. But what you're offering is a description of how things are, right? But morality is about how things ought to be. So the, the, like, just, like if I say, look, I've got five fingers, that doesn't make those five fingers moral. It's just a description of what, how my hand has evolved. So if life has somehow emerged and life must continue and it will do whatever it can to continue and all sentient beings have that compulsion to propagate and it uh, will in, and life will in, life will invent morality morality is a, morality is a emergent property of living things um i think that's there was life before I, there I was morality. Can, there was life oh, before absolutely. there was morality. Absolutely. Life, absolutely. life emerges on the other side with a, and, and life emerges the re- reason, the same reason all sorts of other human characteristics emerge, and that is to serve the over to, to, to serve the overall function. Right, but see the difference is we call it morality because we're reflecting upon it. And that's where the work of morality takes place. My dog has the same compulsion to live and propagate. But so, so, so for example, when my dog, when I'm, I'm out in the lawn with my colleagues and we get our dogs together and they start humping each other on the lawn, it's, it's ridiculous to say like, don't, that's inappropriate. 
right? Like if I started humping my colleague on the lawn at 12 noon while students are walking by, we can call that inappropriate. We can call that even immoral, especially if the other person doesn't want it. But when the dog starts to do it, we, we can't say to the dog, you're being immoral, right? It's, it's ridiculous. Like, so the dog has the same compulsion to life. The only animal, though, that we can, I don't want to say the only one, because Franz de Waal has noted at the higher, the other bonobos and chimps also have a degree of, of moral thinking in terms of you know of, of care of regret of theory of mind okay if i do this it's going to harm hurt the other person like when when my friend's dog saw a rabbit and just tore after it and ripped its neck it didn't think it never felt regret it didn't go like ah maybe i shouldn't have done that and my dog can feel regret if i get mad at her you can see she feels a little embarrassed or sheepish so it's not a difference of of kind it's just a matter of degree but when we talk about that life force i guess i i wouldn't call that a basis of morality. I would say that that's just the, that's what's happening, right? But we get to call it moral, and that's because we are have the kind of brains that we have that have evolved to develop things like empathy, sympathy, guilt. Those things are so highly developed in us that now we can start to talk about: Should I have lied? Should I not? Should I eat that animal? Should I not? Should I, you know? kill this person to save 50 or should I not? That's the work of morality, but it all takes place in our minds. And but you so, see, what I, would, what I would contend is when you're on the lawn and, you're, and your dog's like, I instinctually <laughs> want to propagate life, so I hump whatever moves, whatever's near me. Right. When you don't hump whatever is near you, yeah, there is a calculation that still, you know, it has to do with social position yeah. and cooperation and this and that but it's still if i drill if i drill down far enough you go like the reason i'm not humping everyone <laughs> on this lawn is because instinctually i want my genes to survive and propagate and my best <sighs> and, and i have come to a conclusion that my best strategy for having my genes survive and propagate um is, is best served by not humping my colleagues <laughs> this is a funny, funny example, uh, <laughs> and I don't know how long we want to stick with it. I think we're. Well, I'm just worried about water. your colleagues. Yeah, uh, they're going to be embarrassed. Exactly. But, but my my point is, is that is that even the most esoteric moral decisions that we make that have to do with guilt and shame and yeah. wanting to, you know, and and position and 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 social etiquette that they are all still rooted in a desire to be in good keeping with the tribe. Yes, absolutely. Because there is an instinctual understanding that being in good keeping with a tribe is my my genes best opportunity to survive and propagate. I, I, I totally agree. But I guess the difference, I still don't see how it makes morality objective. It just, it still resides in our it own makes, judgments. It makes, yes, it makes the moral goal objective. The goal of morality. Mor morality is not an end. It is a means. Right. To, to, pro to keep life going. Yes. But, what, but why is it moral? According to who or what? If it keeps life going, it's moral. Yeah. And if it doesn't, it's not. Says who? Says any living creature that wants to stay alive. Right. But at the, at, well, okay. So at the end, only humans could answer that question. Like, right. We can't ask that of other animals because they can't understand it and they can't verbalize it. So it's still at the end, we're the finer, final ones having this conversation. I think we're simply aware of, we, yeah. I, I think our moral reasoning is simply an awareness of a natural process. 
Okay. So that you're hu- saying that the pursuit of human flourishing is at the root of everything. Yeah, or, I agree. And, with, I like that. And 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 therefore that morality is not about is is not about deciding what is right. It's about coming to a finer understanding of right so that you can attack it, attack the problem more effectively. Yeah, that I, I, I hear what you're saying and I I, I, I disagree. I, I disagree. know you do. I know. And that's why <laughs> I mean, as much example, as I like Bart, your book, if, what I'm going to ask is, what do you think yeah. it means to make a moral decision? You mean what makes the decision moral or what does it mean to yeah, deliberate? Yeah, what oh. makes a decision morally correct? Oh, the, okay. What makes a decision? For me, that's very simple. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> so, uh, uh, does it cause, will this action cause unnecessary pain, harm, or suffering to humans or other animals? What's wrong does with this, suffering? Oh, it's painful. It's unpleasant. I want to say is, is, is suffering isn't always wrong. Okay. I said unwanted or unnecessary. Right. So necessary to what? Yeah. To, to life. Well-being. To life. I, I totally agree. But see, Bart, I, I, all right, let me ask you this. So if I could prove to you, right, that doing aerobics every day will make you healthier and live longer, and I have all the evidence that prove it, does that mean going to aerobics is moral? It's, it's improving life. It's making you live longer. It's increasing your well-being. Is aerob- and aerob- going to aerobics every day moral? Or is it if just my, good exercise? If my children require me to be alive to protect them until they are able to stand on their own two feet, then it is immoral of me to endanger my health and it is moral of me to protect it so that I may protect them. Yes. Right, but, yes. but that presupposes a and lot. If, and, if I am in on a, and if I am on a desert island and nobody's life Nobody's life is impacted and, right. and, and no, they're, they're, the propagation of my species is not impacted by my decision to exercise or not, or even die or not, then I am free to live or die. And, and, and there's, no moral, there's no moral component to that behavior because it doesn't affect my ultimate, my ultimate purpose or aim as a, as, as a living being. I hear what you're saying, but I just, I think it's so thick with your own values and your own judgments, which I, that's I what I'm saying. With. Right. But that doesn't, so that means it's not objective. It's not like you've discovered it some is, truth. It's, it's not that, objective, that but it's prove. common. It's common. Well, Every living thing shares it with me. But that doesn't make it moral. Just because something is common, it, it doesn't make it moral. So, so I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering yes. is I'm back to Euthyphro. Okay. Euthyphro says, you know, is it is it right because God says it or does God say it because it's and right? And that makes it right. Yeah. And what I'm going to yeah. say is, hey, Euthyphro, you know what makes something right? Is what, it, what makes something right is if it causes living things to survive and propagate. That we have wired into us in the same way that we have sexuality, our sexual desires are wired into us. And you go like, yeah, why, why would all living things want to, you know, why would all mammals want to have sex? And you go like, because the ones that didn't want to have sex didn't reproduce, right? So like, so like your desire to have sex is built in and your desire to base every decision upon the, the, the propagation and thriving of, of your species and of life in general, that is built in too. Your morality is wired into you. Okay. 
Again, Bart, if it's wired into us, there's no point in calling it moral. It's just our nature. It would be like calling that's it right. would be like calling my ha- my balding hair moral. It just like th- that that's the what I'm or trying to Or your sex drive. Right. Your sex drive isn't moral, my, it just or is. Or my five fingers. Like what I'm trying to say is that of course there's a bioevolutionary imperative that we have to that that is what our species survived because we were good at surviving and we favored and traits that allowed us to survive more were favored. Those that didn't have those died out. So all of the reasons we're here today has to do with our evolutionary past. No question about it. But morality to me is something different than recognizing natural imperatives. It's asking ourselves, ought we, ought we, and that ought, and that's what, that's that, you know, is ought dilemma that, that David Hume talked about. Like, I can tell you right now, there is a dog in my office. I can prove it. Now, what ought we do with that dog? Ought we eat it? Ought we skin it? Ought we worship it? Ought we beat it? Ought we pet it? Ought we love it? Like, though, that's the work of morality. And I don't see how any as like, you can say, well, we have a natural, you know, desire to live. Well, that, that's debatable. Like, I got a vasectomy, man. It's like, if I really wanted to propagate life, the most reasonable and rational thing, as Steven Pinker said, is that I would go and donate sperm to every sperm bank in the greater Los Angeles area. And that would be the most rational thing to propagate my species. But I don't do that. Like I am a monogamous relationship that is totally thwarting my nature. I'm not eating my dog. I'm actually treating my dog better than I'm treating strangers out there who are homeless. Like I'm giving my dog food and shelter and there's other people, you know, in my in my own city that I'm not doing that for. So to me, the work of morality is something different than recognizing natural imperatives or bio bioevolutionary compulsions. But it's in the it's in the realm of making value judgments, deciding what we ought to do despite our nature or in conjunction with our nature. And to me, that's okay. ultimately going to be yeah. <laughs> okay. Which brings us to the second half of your book, because after you're done, sort of saying. These are the reasons why I don't think God helps the process. Right. Um, you, you come to a thing where you go like, this is how I think it ought to be done. This is the basis. Okay. So now tell me how to decide how to treat the dog in my office. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could answer that one definitively. All I can do now is start thinking, talking, observing, uh, uh, reflecting, and asking myself certain questions that I can't prove are the right ones, right? But that can help me. So, you know, I'm going to place a value on not causing unnecessary pain, harm, or suffering to humans or other beings. I'm going to try to ease or relieve such unwanted pain or suffering if I can. I'm going to try to offer help and assistance to those who need to seek it. I mean, I'm only human. I'm not a saint, but I'll do the best I can to to try to support others, increase health and happiness and well-being in in my family, in my community, in society at large, and all these things. And, and, And the question there is, well, why do that, right? And there can be intellectual reasons there can be bioevolutionary reasons but i would say that secular morality is is basically predicated on again four basic uh bedrock foundations <laughs> so so number 1 is our bioevolutionary past which has given us brains that allow us to 
observe the suffering in others, feel what others are feeling, have empathy, have sympathy, have compassion. And our brains evolve that way in a group context. That's number one. Number two, we all had the experience of being cared for as infants from zero to two, or we wouldn't be here today. Some other human tended to our needs, fed us, nurtured us, or we would be dead. So that imprints a certain experience of what it's like to be cared for and what caring is all about. Then number three, we get a moral our, our moral compass is honed from the people that raise us, those around us, parents, families, communities, society at large, our culture at large. And then number four, personal experiences as we go through life. We experience what it feels like to be lied to. We experience what it feels like to be hungry. We experience what it feels like to be denied justice. And I think those four bases of, of, of secular morality are really what's going on. And I think uh, those function a lot better recognizing, okay, certain traits traits were favored uh, among our you know, ancestral primate past uh, uh, ancestors. And those were conducive towards like everything from understanding what another person might be thinking or feeling, which helped us survive, to wanting to get in good with the group because if we were alone, we died, all of those things. Um, so to me, that's, I try to unpack all. So when people say like, well, where do you get your morals? I would say we get them from our evolutionary past, which, which endowed us with certain kinds of brains that allow us to feel empathy, sympathy, and compassion. We get them from the people and culture and society that raise us. We get them from that experience of being cared for as infants. And we get it from lived experience as we wander through life. Okay. And you break it down into four components. And, and there's a sense in which, theoretically, that sort of allows you to recognize the process or understand the process better than the average bear. Okay. Has recognizing the process or breaking it down that way enabled you to be more moral? Has it strengthened your capacity to make decisions that you feel good about? In my own personal life? Yeah. Um, I'd have to really think about that. I don't know. I, I, I don't like people who claim to be moral. I'm always suspicious of them um, because I think we're all humans. We're all struggling. We all do things against our conscience. We all do things we know we shouldn't do. We all do things that give us an advantage at the expense of others. Um, so I, I don't know because I've never, I've never had any other kind of morality. I've never believed in a god. I've never believed that there were rules written on ancient tablets that tell me how to live. So I've always lived um, this way uh, in a godless universe, you know, struggling and 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 fl flailing my way through the world. Um, I would say that like any intellectual in endeavor, even just reading novels makes me a more moral person. Watching films that move me make me a more moral person. So yeah, I also think reading two years of, you know, spending two years reading about reading moral philosophy, reading evolutionary psychology, reading criminology and history have definitely increased my capacity to be thoughtful about my actions. Uh, and, but I don't think I'm the most moral person. I mean, I think I'm doing the best I can, but you know, I remember, I mean, I remember one night driving on the freeway and a woman was trying to basically kill herself on the freeway and threw herself in front of our car. And it was my wife that screamed, you know, stop and get her in the car. Whereas I was hesitant. I was like, well, shoot, I, do we really want to bring this stranger? And all our kids were in the car. It was at night. Downtown no, I remember LA. reading about that. You, you, know? you write about that in the book. Yeah. So it's like, my, 
you know, my wife hasn't read moral philosophy for two years. She's never read, uh, you know, Aristotle or whatnot. She's very well educated in other areas. So yet in that instance, she was the moral engine behind our decision to save that woman's life. So I, I hesitate to say that that I, I I like to think I'm a moral person, but I'm a deeply flawed person as well and don't always do the right thing. But I would say that as humanity has recognized the, it's has come to a better grasp of its own history, right? Re- understanding evolution. That's very new. We just figured that out 100 years ago. As we've gotten a better job at understanding our psychologies, also very new. As we've done a better job of studying cause and effect in our criminal justice systems, as we've done a better job in understanding human rights, I do think our morality has improved. If all you have to do is read you know, the Hammurabi Code, the Ten Commandments, and then the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, and you can see moral progress right there. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights makes no appeal to a divine being or a magical invisible deity. It's straight up humans writing down how we ought to live with each other. And how many human beings on this planet do you think know it? Well, not enough, but that's our work. Yeah. Well, tell me, what's the, what's the morality that people are actually living out? I'm like, that, that's where we're really at. Okay, so daily violence has plummeted in the last 500 years in most societies on planet Earth, right? Steven Pinker uh, charts all of this in, uh, in, in The Better Angels of Our Nature, in Enlightenment Now, like just daily violence, you know, people beating each other up, people sexually assaulting each other and murdering each other has plummeted in the last 500 years. Now, that's not because of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it is because we have done a better job of understanding how to meet our needs, how to live with each other, the circle of who counts and who matters has expanded. And I would say everybody knows, a lot of people know the Bill of Rights. That's a pretty damn good moral framework for how to create a society. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, no appeal to a creator, just a bunch of white dudes sitting around saying what would make for a good and moral society. And those Bill of Rights, we're living under them today. I mean, some people are trying to thwart them, but there they are. And it doesn't say, you know, and the Lord thus spoke, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, Everybody has a right to uh, to uh, you know free to speak yeah. freely. No, no, I I I think that that's what's interesting to me. Is I feel like moral decision making does best when it's grounded in some kind of a narrative. Oh yeah, and the moral reasoning that I find most compelling these days, and that I think is probably the reason why there's not so much killing as there was is that the narrative says, the narrative that I think more and more people are coming under the heading of is saying, my life will be better if I behave in a way that benefits my neighbor. That caring for others is actually enlightened self-interest. Yeah. Um, and that I've got a narrative, I've got an evolutionary narrative, I've got, um, the, I've, I've got my conversations with other people that you were talking about, you know, that yeah. as, I, as I listen and talk and compare notes with people, you sort of go like, gosh, who's doing well? Mm-hmm. Who's thriving? Who seems mm-hmm. to be happy? That's oh my right. gosh, strangely <laughs> enough, it is not the ones that are murdering and killing and raping. And, and, and you know, that doesn't seem to be a great strategy for thriving, for flourishing. And so- Absolutely. You know, I find myself wondering, I mean, what's funny is, is that there are many things that I don't agree with in your book. Mm -hmm. And yet I endorse your book 
heartily. And I think it's incredibly important and valuable. And the reason is because I do think it gives a variety of really good answers to the questioning theist who says, I think God is the key. Right. And I think that you sort of answer back and go, actually, if you're really going to make good decisions, the God idea is a, a, an impediment to your moral development. Mm. I think it's a really important book in the sense that I think it answers the question when they say, if you're secular, I don't see how you mm -hmm. can be moral. And in some ways you flip the question and go like, gosh, if you believe in God, I'm not sure how you can be moral. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, I, I, I appreciate I, I, that. I think that's, that, that's, that's really an important, you know, that's a really important thing. Yeah. And I think that you're, you, you give the big seven. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say the yeah, big the seven? Yeah, the secular seven. Yeah, the secular seven virtues. I, I just want to quickly respond to that, what you just said before, though, you know, about not agreeing with everything. And I, I think that's absolutely, I mean, there's no way anybody could ever write a book about morality or ethics. And, and everyone and, you know, would agree with. Yeah, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. I think people are going to, people are going to find things in here that they totally disagree with. And that's, the, that's ethical jazz. That's, that's improvising. That's just the way it goes. So I totally understand that someone could be like, nah, I do that with every book. I read, and I would expect people to do that with this book as well. But I'm glad at least that I, I definitely did try to flip the table around and say, actually, it's the God believers that bear the burden of proving why, why their approach is moral. Uh, I think with a secular approach is on much more solid footing. And yeah, the, 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 the and I do have to wind down pretty soon, Bart. I'm not sure what your time frame no, is. No, 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 it's, it's uh, fine. But the secular seven was my attempt to say, you know, there are certain virtues and values in secular life that even secular people aren't always aware of and don't talk about, and yet they bolster much of our morality. Um, and, you know, these are things like the value of free thinking, um, living in reality, like accepting the world as it is, not the way we wish it were, having a certain here and now-ness that this is it, this is all we've got, and that propels us to act in certain ways. Accepting existential mystery. We may never know why we're here, how it all began, what it's all about, but that we shouldn't get hung up on those mysteries, but focus on what we can know. Um, the value of scientific empiricism. No nothing beats the scientific method if you want to solve certain basic questions, right? And uh, of of health, of transportation, of communication, of of crime prevention, et cetera, et cetera. Cosmopolitanism, compassion, empathy. So I, I tried to write a chapter that says, look. Religious people, you know, we think of certain virtues as being synonymous with certain religions, right? We think of Christianity, we think of maybe forgiveness or love or mercy, and people think of Judaism and they think maybe of study or debate or whatnot. And, and I want it to be where when people think of secular humanism, they're like, oh yeah, those are the guys that are really big on, <laughs> you know, a morality based in empathy, scientific empiricism, here and now-ness, that kind of thing. Yeah. An acceptance of, of finitude and, and, yeah, and yeah. contingency. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I guess for me, what I felt like when I read that, and, and this is the, the reason why the second half of your book was very valuable to me, um, is you're like, okay, I was wondering what that was. Um, <laughs> is that I feel like you write in a descriptive manner rather than in a prescriptive manner. I don't think you're saying these seven things are what you ought to believe in order or, or the, the, these ought to guide your behavior. 
it feels like you're stepping back and you're watching how people really live their lives. Yeah. And you're saying, you know what I keep noticing is that the people that seem to be doing the best morally, like the people that seem to be comfortable with their moral decision making and that seem to be making decisions that, you know, somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois or there were a number of other people that you sort of hero heroic figures of, of, of moral. You say, you know what? If I look at all these people, you know, they seem to have in common. They do this. Yeah. They do that. They do this other thing. And so I'm just sort of saying like, you know, you might want to pay attention. Exactly. Because you're right. These you're are right. the things that seem to cause people to flourish morally. I think so. I yeah. think you're right. I like that part. Yeah, it's basically de- definitely based on my years of studying and interviewing secular people and, and these things bubbling to the surface and me observing and saying, oh, this is what's really going on here. Even if you're not articulating it in this kind of like, oh, these are my virtues that by which I live, it comes out in the stories people tell, it comes out in the way they live their lives. And I was definitely trying to describe that. Yeah, and lay it out. You bet. And I think the value of that is that I think that once I buy a Volkswagen, I tend to see Volkswagens everywhere I go. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and if Volkswagens are encouraging, I will be very encouraged. And I think that once I identify what are the characteristics of secular morality, mm-hmm. what 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 are, what are the what are the 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 signs of of se- of moral health in another human being? That once I know what those are, I look at somebody like oh. You know, that, that thing they just said, that, that lets me know that they really are living in the here and now. Oh, that right. thing that they said, that lets me know that compassion is, is very present. And you watch a movie or you, you read a novel and you go like, ah, I, I, you know, I recognize the moral dimension of this story. I love that, And I Bart. think that that. That, that that strengthens us. Oh, I hope so. You just you just brightened my day. I hope so. I hope that happens. Well, I, I think I, love you, that. I think you think you've done an important thing. Oh, I think thanks, you've Bart. done an important thing. And and you know, if you and I get in a big argument uh, 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 about what lies at the very very base of that project, yeah, um, I think that's 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 far less important than looking at the moral structure that you build upon that base. It's also um, just kind of that's, fun. <laughs> that's where we live. Yeah, I, I hope it's fun. It's been fun talking with you. It that's really why, has. That's why, that's why I never left college. I just like having yeah. these kind of arguments. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I hope that other people find this conversation interesting. I, I, I have, because this is pushing me. It's yeah. pushing me because okay. I really want to be a better articulator. Okay, of, yes. We've got to do that work. Of what's good about, about, about what's, what's inspiring about taking um, this life seriously. I agree, Bart. Well said. All right, well baby. Said. Thanks so much for thanks for your careful reading of the book too, Bart. That meant so, that means so much to me. You've always uh, just so appreciated, and I uh, you've given me the pushback was really really helpful. Like it really really gave me a lot to to fit, think about and sit with, and I really I really appreciate that from you. Ah oh, man. Hey. Um, I, I, are you going to do, what are you going to do to promote this book? Anything in particular? I've got a book tour. I'm going up to Seattle for the book tour in Portland and I think the Bay Area. And then I'm doing a bunch more radio and podcasts. And I had a, yeah, so we'll see, you know, that op, uh, just that op-ed you mentioned earlier got me some publicity. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Give that dog, I because I, I know that among your moral choices, I know that with the dog in the room, I know the choice <laughs> you have made is to worship that dog. <laughs> and right. so as you, as you, as you, right. as you worship the dog, yeah. you know, 
nice to your kid too. Thanks so much. I will, Bart. Take care, brother. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. There it was. Me and Phil. You know, it's funny. We're really good friends. But he 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 checked in with me after that conversation. He said, was that like, I felt like we were kind of, you know, getting into it with each other. I don't know. Was that okay? And And... I listened to it again and I thought like, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, friends don't always, you know, slap each other on the back and go like, another good point you've made. Friends push it because they can. Yeah, I like that conversation. I like that guy. I like you. I like doing this podcast and I'll see you next week. That's, that's all I got to say. Oh, you may be saying like, hey, I thought you usually shout out to people that support. Have you run out of supporters? Nah. I just didn't consult the list this week. I thought, I, I thought I'd give it a break. So that next time when I start thanking people that are patrons of the podcast who have gone to the Patreon page or have gone to BartCampola.org and they've checked in and they've, they've gotten on board. So the next time I do that, it'll sort of feel special all over again because I want it to feel special because it is special. And uh, this opportunity to be in your ear is special. And so thanks for inviting me, and I'll catch you next time. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.